Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound. And you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. It's Tuesday, November 15th, 2022, from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. On Monday night, the House of Representatives swung mightily towards the Republicans. Five seats were called in their favor, putting them on the threshold of the majority. As of this recording, it seems like they are on the cusp, by the time you hear it, may have already met the threshold, which raises to me... What has been perhaps the most overhyped political question of the last week, will Kevin McCarthy become Speaker of the House? The answer is yes, he will. For all the pushback, feedback, objections, and Matt Gates talking to Steve Bannon in interviews, it didn't even seem like such a rough vote. Okay, that's not the interesting part. What is interesting, however, is exactly how the Speaker of the House is named and selected. For one thing, The Constitution, while directing the House to choose its Speaker and other officers, does not direct the House to choose as its Speaker from among members of the House. So this means anyone who meets the criteria for serving in the House of Representatives could be the Speaker. Oh, you say, what about the fact that they're third in line for the presidency? Don't they have to be 35 and a naturally born citizen? They do not in the same way that cabinet secretaries do not. Heads of departments or speakers of the House in this situation who are constitutionally not, quote, eligible to the office of president are disqualified from assuming the powers and duties of the president through secession and skipped to the next in line. So it could be anyone, including anyone who needn't be qualified to be president. Now, in practice, it has always been a member of the House of Representatives chosen from the dominant party. But there have been votes. Oh, there have been other votes. In 2013, progressive candidate Victor Murdoch of Kansas, and this just wasn't a designation or description of his politics. Remember back then, Teddy Roosevelt, the progressive party, he was that party's vote for Speaker of the House, and he got 18 votes. That was the most votes for someone who wasn't a Republican or a Democrat to ever have received for Speaker of the House. Since then, you know, things have gotten a little strange post-2010 Tea Party. A bunch of people have been getting stray votes here and there. One, Colin Powell, showed up a couple of times. He was never, of course, in the House of Representatives. And in 2013, a whole bunch of people got votes for Speaker of the House, including Eric Cantor, the dream that died, Jim Cooper, John Lewis, Jim Jordan, Raul Labrador, Justin Amash, and David Walker who, I mean, if you study politics, you probably know most of these names. They were members of the House of Representatives at the time or 
they were Colin Powell. But wait, who's David Walker? I did some research, which included reaching out to the person who I think is David Walker. David Walker, as nominated by Walter Jones in 2013, is the former Comptroller General of the United States, or if you want to pronounce it technically correctly, though not phonetically, Controller General. He controlled us, generally speaking. He's a former flag officer in the U.S. military, a certified public accountant, and he became a crusader for things like a balanced budget and fiscal responsibility. He is the kind of public servant who brings a tear to my eye, not least of all because of the fact that right after getting a vote to be Speaker of the House, he danced along with the former Fed Vice Chairman Alice Rivlin to the Harlem Shake. This very much puts it precisely in 2013. Heyday for David Walker, not even coming close to getting Speaker of the House, becoming infinitely closer than most of us who aren't named Colin Powell or who actually were Speaker of the House. Every time I say Speaker of the House, I think of that Les Mis song. So let's just say that David Walker told a saucy tale of financial responsibility. May Kevin McCarthy govern so boldly. On the show today, I speak of not a universal basic income, but another universal gifting that could increase knowledge and openness for all of society. Publishing industry, take note. But first, the biggest sporting event in the world kicks off, and I do mean kicks off this weekend. The World Cup starts in Qatar. And even if you're not a fan of the World Cup, were you to be a fan or become one, you might be happier. You might have more friends. Unless, of course, you're a fan of Italy, which failed to qualify. But this isn't about the World Cup per se. This is about fandom in general, the philosophy of being a sports fan. Authors David Sikoriak and Ben Valenta, two sports executives, have written a book called Fans Have More Friends. They talk about their love of sports and how teams can be an unexpected source of community and of happiness. And even if you don't agree with us going in, you'll surely agree or be a grumpy hermit on the way out. Sikoriak and Valenta up next. Hi, this is Rachel Yucatel, and I'm here to invite you to listen to my podcast, Misunderstood with Rachel Yucatel. This podcast delves into the lives of those who have been reduced to a single headline. Each episode will take a closer look at the stories of those who are on a mission to change their narrative. Join me as we uncover the truth behind the misconceptions, shed light on the stories of those who have perhaps been wrongfully portrayed, explore the complexities of the human experience, and celebrate the power of second chances. Who doesn't love a good comeback story? If you've been listening to me for a while, you know that I love sports and covered sports for 10 years, and I don't talk about sports too much on The Gist. Some people just tune out, but what I like to do is get a good sociological angle or a thousand, 10,000 foot angle and consider the role of sports in people's lives. A new book by two men perfectly positioned to analyze the role of fandom is out it's a uh, beautiful little book and makes a compelling argument encased in the title. Fans have more friends. The authors are Ben Valenta and David Sikoriak. Welcome to The Gist. Thanks for having us on. Yeah, we're happy to be here. 
Okay, so that was David and Ben respectively, so my listeners can now identify the voices. Give me a brief uh, bio of each of your work. Uh, David, you can go first. Sure. I started off in the ad agency world on a digital side and then went over to work at uh, NBC on the news side and did consumer insights type work. So we'd, we'd field research, qualitative, quantitative, do ethnographies, and I would, I would be kind of a champion of the consumer internally. From there, I went to uh, Madison Square Garden and worked uh, across the businesses at uh, the Knicks, the Rangers, um, the Rockettes, um, MSG Live, and, and all around. And then in 2017, um, I started uh, my own company, Dexterity Consulting, and doing the work I've been doing for years in consulting and research and marketing strategy. And Ben and I have been working together for quite some time in different roles. And I began consulting um, for Ben back in 2018. And Ben, you're a, you're a TV executive? I am. I am. I'm currently at Fox Sports. I'm the senior vice president of strategy and analytics. Um, my, my path is very similar to, to Dave. It's just the inverse. So I started off as a consultant and, uh, and then eventually landed here at Fox Sports about seven years ago, but spent the bulk of my consulting career in sports, in media, in technology, um, and, and doing similar work, kind of digging into the, the consumer insights, driving some of the behavior and then developing brand strategies uh, based on those insights. And uh, that's what I do at Fox Sports today. So David, you when you say you worked at MSG, not just the TV network, you were there uh, at the Garden, yes? At the Garden, yes. Okay, so you must have noticed what I've noticed, which is that when it comes to uh, rooting for sports, especially in person, they're a type of entertainment. So it wouldn't surprise me that people who really enjoy a type of entertainment maybe get more entertainment in their lives, but they're a different kind of entertainment. And I've noticed this. If you go to a Broadway play and you don't look at the play, you look at the the audience, which is essentially what you do as a focus group researcher, you'll notice that the audience, if it's well done, is focused, laser focused at the stage. They don't break their gaze, unless cats are in the audience, you know, for a musical. But that is the design to absorb yourself in that world and almost lose yourself to that world. If you go to the orchestra, you see some people looking off and they like to listen with their eyes closed, but mostly it's either entering that world of looking at the orchestra or entering a world of self. But if you go to a sporting event, I would say a good 25 to 40% is spent turning to the people next to you and high-fiving and talking and engaging with them. And I was wondering from your vantage point as someone who studies the behavior of people who go to live events, have you noticed that? And specifically, does it show up in ways like when people go to refreshment stands and how often they, or what kind of activities they engage with as they watch the sports? And what does that tell us about the difference between sports and other kinds of entertainment? Uh, th that's a great intro and something that we haven't, uh, you know, Ben and I, we talk, we've been talking about this stuff for years and haven't actually articulated a comparison of you going to see a movie, going to see a show and being so fixated where at a game, yes, you are there to watch a game, but you are there for each other. Um, you are there to be with each other and to interact with each other. And so when I first got to the garden, um, we, you know, and Ben was part of this, we, we, we did some research and really understanding, you know, what is, what do they want in the experience? Do they want food delivered or whatever? And long story short is it wasn't about what the garden was doing for them. It is what they were doing with each other. The interactions they have, the usher saying hi to you, big deal. It's, it's fun. Like, especially at the garden, they're like, you know, genuine New Yorkers and you come in and say, Hey, Mike, how you doing? And it's great. And then you're going yeah. out getting food and interacting with random people. It is those 
interactions that, especially if you're, you know, you're coming back and you're repeating this as a season ticket holder, that you're coming for because they make you feel good and you're you're connecting around a common bond and then you could talk about the Knicks and the lack of effort last night and whatever you want. But um, it's those interactions that matter. Yes, what happens on the court matters, but the Knicks are a, a classic point. And we use the Knicks as an example of a, a franchise that's been in disarray for 20 years. Um, bad basketball. Why would you pay that money in New York? Well, you pay it because you're there with other people. And to put a point on it, this isn't just good customer service. This is specific to the sports experience. So if someone goes to see, say, Billy Joel during one of his uh, artist-in-residency stints, it would be a little bit different. The usher maybe wouldn't be saying hi to everyone. Yeah, you know, it, would ha- it, it could happen in those instances, right? You go to Billy Joel, you're going to sing with somebody, you're going to whatever, and there'll be a stranger and smoke a little or whatever it is. But in a game, it's like, did you see that? Well, there, a high five, a hug. Oh, like, oh, crap, this happened. Um, those are things that it's like a range of interactions that you're able to get in a, um, going to um, a sporting event, which is unique um, to kind of going seeing live events. The difference between going to see Billy Joel and going to see the Knicks at the Garden is you probably see Billy Joel once a once a you know once a year once once a lifetime maybe right you go to the, if you're a season ticket holder to the to the Knicks you go to the Garden 20, 30, 40 times a year right you you go to the same seats the same section uh, you probably see the same usher you get to know oh that's that's Joe you know he's from Queens. Um, and, and now I have this connection with a person who has gone from perfect stranger who we can interact with the, the Knicks about to someone who I know on the periphery, right? I know I recognize their face. I know their name. I have a little bit of their backstory. And now we've got that, that deeper connection. And that's the kind of reliable recurring rhythm that sports uh, offers us to latch onto that makes it so powerful as a social engine. Yeah, and the equivalent of the usher for people who don't go to the game but watch the game is the announcer. It's Walt Frazier. It's the familiar narrator in the story that is sports. So we, we've jumped the gun a little bit. Just There are so many stats here, some mind-opening stats about how much more engaged in civic society and functional sports fans are, but just lay a couple of your most surprising findings on us. I think some of the, uh, you know, in that in that category of, of insights, you know, I think um, what we found is that, that, you know, it's the title of the book, fans have more friends, right? So they have these more robust social uh, lives. But what that translates to is this cascade of, of wellness markers, right? And we see that played out in terms of how people rate their levels of happiness or confidence or optimism. But we also see it played out, as you, as you point out, um, in terms of how people engage in their communities. So uh, a couple of the more surprising ones, uh, People who are, are avid, bigger fans are more likely to be registered to vote. Um, they're more likely to give to charity. They're more likely to exercise regularly. Uh, so there's the, a number of markers that you would you would never think have some sort of correlation or connection to sports fandom that, that actually do. And, and I think that that's what the book explores is these sort of unseen uh, positive effects that, that your fandom can bring about. The more of a fan you were, the more likely you were to use masks during the pandemic, the more likely you were to get the shot. The bigger a fan you are as a Democrat, the more likely you are to see some common bonds or to have some positive feelings towards Republicans and vice versa. And it's not just fan, non-fan. Along the gradations of fandom, it goes up in a correlation so consistently, like I said, mind-opening stats. That last point is really important. I'd like to just pause and draw a line under it. Engagement amplifies the effect. 
And that's that's the important thing to keep in mind. So yes, you can make a comparison between fans and, and non-fans, but it's important. The, the the bigger fan you are, the more avid fan you are, we use the term the, the higher value fan you are, the more likely you are to enjoy these these benefits. And that's important because it 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 sort of says to people, hey, this kind of behavior, if you lean into it, if you do more of it, you will realize these benefits to a greater extent. Okay, I buy your thesis, but I want to test your thesis because this will make maybe my audience buy it more. How do you know that it's causation and not correlation? Why can't we just say maybe it's that happy people or um, energetic, engaged enough people, people who allow the opportunity to really get into a sports team are generally, let's say, higher affect, more sociable people. So, of course, we're going to see a correlation between big fandom and these uh, traits that you're talking about. Yeah, and that's that's something that we we've been last few years been spinning around um, in circles because there's really no pure way of uh, proving that. Like, can I isolate social people or you know put people on a social? You you could do that um, and then overlay it. But so the way we the way our, our response to this is we have we we've amassed a large data set. We've done dozens of surveys over the course of the last few years. And so on the topic of friends, if we isolate it to just high income people, you 100K plus, the bigger fan you are, the more friends you have. If you isolate it to um, college, you know, those with graduate degrees, the bigger fan you are, uh, the, the more friends you have. If you, you know, so then we've been layering on and then kind of putting these high income graduate degrees and from a certain part of the country same kind of thing um, going on. Or so another thing we've asked of like, uh, you're kind of, you growing up, um, your your parents' re- relationship. Did you have a mother, a dad at home, a mother at home, a parents married, uh, you know, through, through to your 18? When you isolate those with two parents at home, biological parents, you know, all, all the kind of, you know, quote unquote, uh, you know, family values, you, you end up, the bigger fan you are in that group, um, the more friends you have. And this works with the happiness. And this, because you know, these are all, all kind of related. If you, uh, if you experience a greater sense of belonging, you're going to be happier, more confident, more optimistic. And so no matter how we've isolated, it's kind of, and isolated on things to getting to what your point of like, just, you know, it attracts a certain person. Um, it works. And then conversely, just a if you take low income, like, you know, the things that would be kind of a little bit disconnected from society and isolate those people, you see the same trends working. I, I guess I would, I would also say like we've, so we've done the hard work of trying to like isolate these different variables and make comparisons and sort of see these different populations, um, you know, sort of in discrete ways. The other thing I would say is just like, if we just step back and think about it, sports are such a, a gigantic force in mainstream culture and it intersects with society at such a, at such a scale that it, it, could you say that people who are more social kind of like tend to gravitate to sports? Yes, maybe, but we're talking about like, uh, you know, conservatively a hundred million people in the country. And to say that all of those people are, uh, just social people or extroverts, um, it just feels like it it doesn't hold water, um, kind of intuitively that, that, that we would be able to sort of like have such a big group of population that, that wouldn't have a diverse array of personality traits. Right. And, and we see these effects kind of drawn out across this, this huge population, which, which I think leads to a, a conclusion that, that really it, it is fandom that's kind of driving this 
um, this sort of force of connection and, and creating this interaction amongst people that ultimately leads to these positive effects. Yeah. And of course, it's not true that all sports fans are extroverts. We've heard Doris from Rigo Park or Jeff from Flushing call into WFAN and demand that the coach be fired. And these don't seem exactly like the sort of people who are, uh, you know, going to Toastmasters conventions on the weekend. But I take your point that even among groups, there is uh, more happiness within fandom. Okay, here's another, I don't know if you want to call it pushback, but a way to test the thesis. Our society, I think most societies, but certainly our society, um, confers positivity upon sports. You go to high school and, you know, the stereotype, which is true, is that the cheerleader, who's a very happy person, cheers for sports and that the captain of the football team is a happy guy and that we're funneling positive energy and society is giving a message that sports are good, be into sports. If you're more like the goth kid or the kid in the AV club, you might not in life come off as or be a positive, engaged person. But was it because or have anything to correlate to sportsdom or was it just that your passions weren't as encouraged by society? It's uh, making the non-sports fan sort of an outcast from the get-go. I think it depends on the language you use to set that that framework up. I'm not So are sports encouraged by society? Yes. Or you could say that they're, they're sort of a mainstream cultural interest. And by tapping into that mainstream cultural interest, you give yourselves uh, more opportunities to connect, right? So we can bond over a lot of things. Like we might have a shared interest that is kind of a niche hobby, right? And you and I can connect over that thing. And that can that can anchor our relationship. It can galvanize interactions, right? It can, it can, it can sort of support this friendship. Um, but I can't necessarily walk into a, a you know, a, a, a stranger's, uh, a bar with a bunch of strangers and uh, use that same niche interest to facilitate interaction. Sports are so big that it enables interactions are kind of across a wide array of people from intimate relationships, my closest friendships, my family, all the way to the barista who's making my latte wearing the Dodgers hat, right? And, and I think that's the important thing to recognize here with sports is that they're so big that you're basically just tapping into this flywheel of connection. And that's the thing that's going to leave you with more friends, more interactions, and ultimately happier and more fulfilled. Ben Valenta is a senior vice president of strategy and analytics for Fox Sports. And David Sikoriak is a founder of Dexterity Consulting and a former executive at NBC in Madison Square Garden. The name of their new book is Fans Have More Friends. Ben and David, thanks so much. Thank you. This is great. Thanks for having us. A lot of fun. And now the spiel. Former Vice President Mike Pence spoke for the first time of his reactions inside the Capitol on January 6th. He was speaking with David Muir of ABC last night. When asked for his emotions, Pence responded with a vivid approximation of how humans feel things. It angered me, David. And um, I, was, I, was, I was filled with an indignation that... Um, not this, not here, not in America. The white-hot passion of Sam the Eagle from the Muppets. To be fair to Pence, that is just who he is. He doesn't emote, he stiffens. His spine, his resolve, his gaze. 
but through the eyes, the steely, determined eyes of Mike Pence, we did get a glimpse, a withering, unblinking glimpse, of what it was like to be inside the chaos unleashed by the man he served with fidelity and steadfastness, the signature posture of Mike Pence. And so the question needed to be asked. Do you believe that Donald Trump should ever be president again? David, I think that's up to the American people. But I think we'll have better choices in the future. You know, the people of this country actually get along pretty well once you get out of politics. And I think they want to see their national leaders start to reflect that same, that same compassion. Spoken like a patriotic Muppet who believes in the will, the wisdom, and the potential backlash of the one-time Trump voter. I give Mike Pence credit for doing the right thing for the right reasons, and I acknowledge he is playing the hand dealt to him as a person with presidential aspirations, which is almost always the case if you were the last vice president who served an administration still held in high regard by one's own party. Specifics of Pence's agenda or values or personality aside, it's normal, it's understandable, especially as judged through the steel prism of penciness, which actually sometimes gets spell-corrected to penisness. But why are we hearing all of this now, this reflection? Why is this the moment to finally hear some pensive penciness? Well, Pence has a responsibility to history, to the Republic, and now is the time where he, now, come on, he has a book coming out. So help me God. Yeah, that's the name of the book. So help me God. That's also the name of my reaction to this entire phenomenon. Not since Bill Barr's, not this guy again, has a book been so aptly named. Actually, Barr's book was aptly named. It was called One Damn Thing After Another, Memoirs of an Attorney General. And his revelations and reflections were aptly timed for his book tour. Without the book, we might never have known that he was embarrassed joining President Trump after police cleared protesters in Lafayette Park. And if it weren't for former Trump administration official John Bolton's book, we might not have gotten this bit of honesty. Today, we learned that Bolton, a conservative and former Fox News contributor, claims President Trump was repeatedly played by world leaders and is, in his words, unfit for office. Even Steve Bannon, who has at his disposal YouTube channels, podcasts, Breitbart, probably a dozen Discord servers. Even he used the book to lob the fraggiest of grenades. An odd move for a president, but not for Donald Trump. His lawyer is issuing a cease and desist letter to Steve Bannon after he described Donald Trump Jr.'s meeting with Russians at Trump Tower as treasonous in a new book. Therefore, I say, in the spirit of openness and honesty, give everyone a book deal. If we all, as American citizens, had a book deal, then we'd be forthright. If we all got a book deal, we'd be less guarded. We'd be less defensive. You heard of universal basic income? This is universal basic book deal, UBBD. We'd look back to the non-universal basic book deal era, like East Germany looks back to its time under the Stasi. It is astounding that in this era of oversharing and vomiting up information that no one asked for, the powerful 
are still cagey and mum without a book deal to loosen them up. But like a three martini lunch, a book deal is enough to get the revelations flowing. In Vino Veritas, a book deal is the perfect lubricant for a curious public and the honest former public official that we know said former public official wants to be. A book deal would satisfy our need to know. The universal book deal will be like spiking the water supply with sodium pentothal. And not just domestically. Think about all the foreign spies who have died in the service of unloosing the lips of holders of secrets. 139 stars on the walls of the CIA. Just give our adversaries book deals. But my family behind in Russia, they get a book deal too. We all get book deals. We all have access to all information, which is actually pretty similar to being able to access no information. The book deal might just save this republic. Except... There is a fatal flaw in the plan, a potentially disastrous defect, and I will tell you what it is. Once I get a book deal, I currently do not have a book deal, so we're all going down in this plane together, unless I too get a six-figure advance and a Netflix option. I'm thinking Alex Gibney would be a good guy to do the documentary based on my book. So no book deal, no dice, America. Democracy dies in want of book deals, which we learn yet again from the brave members of the Trump administration who choose to say some qualifiedly critical things at the perfect time, which is to say once books are available for pre-order on Amazon. And that's it for today's show. Corey Wara, just assistant producer, aspires to be the just senior producer. And his name is Joel Patterson, and he is a man who was born on this day low many years ago. I don't want to divulge his exact age, but we were born in the same year. He, a month and a couple weeks older than I, I defer to his wisdom and his ability to manipulate tape for all of our needs and desires. Happy birthday, Joel. The COO of Peachfish Productions is Michelle Pesca. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Lipson's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperoo, Peru, 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 and thanks for listening. Now that was unwholesome.